Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I had rather have a plain, russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows than that you call a gentleman and is nothing else. Oliver Cromwell Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, episode 26.6, The First Anglo-Dutch War, part 3. In the previous part of this episode on the Anglo-Dutch War, we examined the background to the conflict that is soon to erupt. This involved explaining why the Dutch were so successful, why the English had been in turmoil, and why the latter believed union with the former was somehow possible. In this episode, part 3, we continue with this narrative of background issues with a few more, such as the Navigation Act, sovereignty over the seas, and a further peek into the inner workings of Dutch trade. We also examine the war's outbreak and the opening salvos therein. I hope you're enjoying the war history, friends, and that you'll stick around to the end to see how it all plays out. You're about to be introduced to a crucial piece of legislation called the Navigation Act, which, I promise, is more interesting than it sounds. Let's get down to it. Of all the issues to sour Anglo-Dutch negotiations in 1651, none was more sore an issue than the Navigation Act. The Navigation Act of November 1651 was the first of many rulings based on mercantile principles that were designed to restrict foreign trade with rebellious colonies. Subsequent English ordinances would follow the same logic, i.e. that to increase the inflow of cash to ensure the reserves of gold and to solidify a balance of trade surplus, what was needed was the elimination of the Dutch middleman, the removal of the Amsterdam entrepot trade. From the moment the bill passed, as per its terms, trade could only enter British shores or its colonies on British ships. The exception to this rule was direct trade. Only goods actually harvested or created in a foreign state could be traded with the use of its foreign ships, 
In other words, there was no middleman. This meant that if Spain wished to trade the wool it harvested directly to London, for example, then it could. What Spain could not do, continuing with this example of wool, was pawn its wool on the Amsterdam market for a better deal, perhaps a different resource, commodity or good, then have the Dutch re-export its produce to further foreign markets, so that the Dutch could then make a little on the side. This process of re-exportation was commonplace, and the Dutch excelled at it. So sought after was the Amsterdam entrepot for the advantages it offered that the vast majority of merchants viewed it worth their while to sell there. With the passing of the Navigation Act though, the Dutch would not be able, under British law, to trade these goods back to Britain, unless the goods travelled in British ships. The Netherlands were dependent on the profits made from Amsterdam, Rotterdam and other ports like them, where the benefits to foreign merchants, because of the port's centrality and variety of wares, provided great incentives to sell up. This had resulted in these Dutch ports becoming vast warehouses of goods of foreign origin that were then sold across the world, including, before 1651, to the British Isles and its American colonies. Goods would come from afar, from foreign or Dutch merchants, from European or faraway places, be stored and then resold to the world under the Dutch banner. The appeal of Amsterdam was, essentially, that everyone was doing it. If you wanted something of value, Amsterdam probably had it stored in a warehouse somewhere. If it helps, you could think of Amsterdam as the Amazon.com of the 17th century. They didn't necessarily make it all, but they did sell it all. Actually, I'm quite proud of that analogy, so, so let's continue with it. Now imagine England doesn't want its citizens to shop on Amazon.com because it wants the direct profits made from selling its goods across the world. England doesn't like Amazon.com very much, but it recognises that the shopping its citizens do constitute a large portion of Amazon.com's profits. So it claims Amazon.com can continue to operate on English shores on a conditional basis. This conditional basis pretty much involves Amazon.com still acquiring and storing the goods that English citizens want to buy, but whenever Amazon has to ship a good out to England, it has to be shipped from Amazon.com's warehouse in an English-owned vessel or transport, the cost of which had to be paid for by Amazon.com's warehouse. This was, in a nutshell, the situation facing Amsterdam and other important Dutch ports like it in late 1651 with the passing of the Navigation Act. Except in the historical case, it was made worse by England extending the rules of its act to its colonies, some of which had come to rely on the Dutch economic presence in almost every respect, and some of whom still possessed questionable loyalties at best towards the Commonwealth government in London. The Dutch could argue that the act appeared anti-Dutch in design. Although other nations certainly traded with England, few could have boasted the storage facilities or ability to re-export as the Dutch. This meant, as the English Council of Trade that designed the ordinance journey had planned, that the foreign states would now have to trade with the English directly. If the Dutch knew that they would have to pay more to the British, then they would charge the Spaniard more to take the wool off his hands in Amsterdam. In response, the Spanish wool merchant may decide that it's more worth his while to simply trade his wool directly with London and avoid Amsterdam altogether, thus cutting out the Dutch entrepot and depriving the Netherlands of its Spanish wool. Now imagine this process happening with a large section of European goods. Although the English were merely one state, their intake of foreign goods in the home islands and in the colonies meant that their extrapolation from the Dutch trade, or from any other state's trade for that matter, would be felt. 
Of course, there was the elephant in the room of the Franco-Spanish War, which during our narrative here was still underway. Both France and Spain had agreed that the Dutch possessed the sole right to carry the goods from their shores. So long as they did not constitute war contraband, these goods in Dutch ships would be taken to Amsterdam or another Dutch port and sold, often to their enemy, in the Entrepot trade network. This was what made the Dutch so effective. France and Spain could hardly trade directly with one another, yet because the Dutch were ever-present and willing, their goods could still be sold. The eager Spanish wool merchant could still sell his wool to the needy French tailor, who would indirectly receive such wool precisely because of Amsterdam's ability not just to add a middleman, but to hide the awkward fact that the French and Spanish relied on one another for trade. And that if they couldn't get it organically, they would find a workaround through their neutral Dutch friends. It was positions like this that proved a boon for Dutch fortunes, and such a fortunate monopoly was exactly why the English passed the act in the first place. France and Spain could engage in the entrepot trade with one another, but the moment either state wished to sell its goods in the same manner to England, it would have to pay extra to the Dutch, so that the Dutch could pay for the ability to sell to the English on their ships. Or, as the result came for Spain, less so with France as an undeclared economic war continued between it and the Commonwealth, some merchants started to avoid using the Dutch entrepot as a place to indirectly sell to their English target market, and began to trade, or at least attempt to trade, more directly with London. The Dutch thus had three choices. They could either pay the fee to the English and use his boat, they could resist and disobey the ordinance and risk inflaming the English, or they could petition in London for its cancellation. Since by early January 1652 a mixed delegation from the provinces of the Netherlands were already in London, they decided to try option C. J.R. Jones, in his book The Anglo-Dutch Wars of the 17th Century, examines the atmosphere that the Dutch delegation faced in London in early 1652. Quote, the extraordinary ambassadors who arrived in England in early 1652 found themselves in an impossible negotiating position. They had instructions to seek the repeal of the Navigation Act and a renunciation of the right to search neutral shipping, without offering anything in return. These preposterous and impossible demands contrasted with the itemised list of claims which the English presented. Accompanied by the peremptory demand that early replies must be made. The brutally direct English attitude and the continued procrastination and evasiveness of the Dutch deepened mutual distrust. Had the negotiations been conducted with a genuine intention of reaching agreement, war might have been averted. End quote. The issue I haven't addressed yet that Jones mentions here, i.e. the English right to search neutral shipping, was part and parcel of the English notions of sovereignty over their own national seas. The English Channel was both a barrier to invasion from the continent and a region of contested sovereignty. During this era, the passage of vessels through its waters had to, by right of English law, signal their submission to the English flag, whatever that ship's nationality. If a Dutch ship passed through the Channel, it could be searched, interned, stripped, etc. until it was deemed acceptable to the rump. Of course, not every ship that the Dutch sent through this waterway was treated in this manner. But the English had a real bee in their bonnet over the issue dating back to older English monarchs who laid claim to the channel as a method of ensuring that any traffic would pay its way to the English state. Sort of like how Denmark's control over the Sound in the Baltic made it the economic masters of the region for the time. 
In the English case, though, the claims neither transformed their economy into one of a powerhouse, nor could be claimed uniformly fair. Why, for example, was France not entitled to lay claim to some of the Channel? And how much was England even entitled to? In effect, the claim to the Channel mostly irritated England's rivals, but by our era, the claim was used to denote sovereignty and wrest salutations from foreign ships, not necessarily get money. Such salutations were supposed to signal that foreign ships recognised the English sovereignty over their own seas, but once again, it had mostly irritated foreign powers. The rump also had good reason to prevent any quality goods reaching French shores. It had been in a state of undeclared war with France since the late 1640s, thanks to persistent trade disputes and the French crown's decision to grant asylum to the exiled Stuarts, and thus any ship was liable to be searched once it ventured into the Channel. Since the Dutch control of the Franco-Spanish trade, as we saw earlier, necessitated the Dutch increase in vessels travelling to Iberia and along the Bay of Biscay, the traffic between the Channel became both increased and, increasingly of, a majority Dutch nationality. This meant that the rump officials began to search, often in controversial fashion, the ships sent through the Channel. It sounds like a cumbersome and petty move, and indeed probably wouldn't have occurred so often had the English and French not simply got along. But because anti-Dutch feeling in the rump parliament was on the rise, and because previous attempts at a union had failed, the Dutch saw such actions by the English, which resulted in the loss of 126 ships in 1651 and 106 in the first half of 1652 alone, as cunning, volatile, and provocative. If an English ship signalled its foreign counterpart, then that foreign vessel would have to make the appropriate signal with its own flags to show that it was in full compliance. It sounds like a minor issue, but if you remember anything from the previous episodes on the Thirty Years' War, you know it's the little things, such as in this case admitting your opponent is superior to you in his seas, which had the most potential to draw ire. And indeed it did. Negotiations were still ongoing in May 1652, when word was received that a Dutch ship having failed to comply with an English signalling, had been fired upon and had fired back. It could have blown over and been passed off by both sides as a minor incident, but in the atmosphere at the time, it proved the perfect catalyst for war. In response to the failing attempts to repeal the Navigation Act, to the intolerable English behaviour towards Dutch vessels along the Channel, and to the increased loss of money, the last issue was likely considered the most important, the Dutch States-General endeavoured to act with strength. It was not a declaration of war, but a declaration of the intent to build. 150 new ships were to be built and ready to go by the 1st of April 1652. This move, which the Dutch hoped could be used to reinforce their depleted trade fleets and drive down the mounting losses and marine insurance costs, were interpreted in London as a step in the direction of confrontation. For what reason, the rump argued, would these ships exist but to hound the English fleets? And behold their commanding admiral, Martin Tromp, an Orangist sympathiser, a man who had violated the sovereignty of English waters in 1639 when he had chased the Spanish fleet and defeated them in the Battle of the Downs. A man who had seized innocent English vessels en route to the Spanish Netherlands in the early 1640s, and a man who had sought to protect the English vessels that had defected or maintained their loyalty to the royalist cause. Perhaps this same Trump was attempting to engineer a coup and sail for the Scilly Islands 
a bastion of royal sentiment in an attempt to reinforce the region and protect it against English attack. In fact, the construction of the Dutch fleet both offended English opinion and provided very little of the raw power it had promised for the Dutch. The Dutch had amazingly disposed of their most potent military vessels after 1648, and upon the announcement to rearm an entire new fleet, the response was mostly apathetic. To make up for the fact that most dockyard owners were more interested in creating merchant vessels designed for profit rather than first rates designed for war, the Dutch government converted many smaller vessels originally meant for long trade voyages into such military vessels. Such shortcuts would have disastrous consequences later on. The Dutch fleet was thus a paper tiger, and possessed few of the huge, overbearing warships that the Rump still possessed. Anyone who has played Assassin's Creed Black Flag and has witnessed a merchant vessel being mercilessly crushed by a gigantic man-of-war should have a good idea of what's about to come for the Dutch. Trump was thus sent out with his polished turd of a fleet in late April 1652, while Dutch representatives continued to rub their English counterparts the wrong way. Trump's mission was to sail to the coast of northern Spain to reinforce a merchant fleet accumulating there, perhaps providing an example of Dutch strength to the English along the way. However, the English sent their own fleet to intercept him, believing that Trump's real mission was the reinforcement of the Scilly Isles in the name of the Royalists. What occurred next is not completely clear, but the two fleets met off Dover. Although Trump had expressed orders not to harass the English, since Dutch politicians were busy in London trying to secure a better deal, and such actions could damage whatever progress may have been expected there, his orders regarding the saluting of the English flag were more clouded. Perhaps the Hague simply expected Trump to signal the English as was customary. However, they did not give him orders to do so, and instead the issue was left to his own discretion. When the commanding English Admiral, Robert Blake, signalled Trump and Trump failed to return the gesture of submission that was expected, Blake signalled again. Trump continued on his course and thus began to move further away from Blake, so the Englishman fired a warning shot, signalling that he expected Trump to take the issue seriously. Trump fired back in response, not a warning, but an actual aimed round, in response to what he believed had not been a warning shot from Admiral Blake, but the beginning of an English attack. Of course this account could go both ways, and there is still little clarity as to who was actually to blame. Perhaps by this stage in the game it really didn't matter. The months before had seen a dramatic escalation of tension between the two potential allies, to the extent that a spark such as was provided here on the 22nd of May 1652 was all that was required to dramatically alter the atmosphere. Now, instead of acting as enemies in all but name and remaining cloaked in the facade of friendship, the Commonwealth and the Dutch Republic could allow their rivalry to exist in its rawest fashion, in war. For the Rump Parliament, in the aftermath of national turmoil, such clarity may have seemed refreshing and enlightening. Although they had not sought the war as far as they were concerned, they did not seek to stop it once the incident between Blake and Trump occurred. Conversely, the last thing the Dutch wanted was war with the British Isles, their delegates would soon face a hostile reception from a host convinced of the Dutch desire to launch the war against Britain, while its own fleet had left for the Mediterranean. The Dutch Republic, having defeated Spain at the close of the Thirty Years' War and having launched itself across the world, while remaining at the economic centre of it, were less than prepared for what was to come. Having failed in their attempts at diplomacy over the previous year with the rump, 
their state was about to face the full brunt of an England moulded by a decade of conflict, and prepared to take away by force all the Dutchmen across the many seas it spent so long creating. It was to prove a dramatic and depressing eye-opener for the Dutch. In closer analysis, it is remarkable that their empire survived at all. Yet in the context of the late 17th century, the First Anglo-Dutch War should be recognised for what it became. The first step in a series of European conflicts that would only end definitively upon the death of Louis XIV in 1715, and the end of the War of the Spanish Succession. Louis's era was soon to dawn, but for the reluctant Anglo-Dutch enemies in 1652, theirs was a conflict alien to both. That had opened that opened a Pandora's box of struggles and taught painful new lessons to a Europe barely recovering from its last foray into the abyss of war. On the 13th of June 1652, the desperate Dutch sent the Grand Pensionary of Holland, effectively the elected leader of the States of Holland, to London to negotiate with the now belligerent Rump representatives. The Rump reps saw the Dutch actions in the month before as treachery. They believed that Trump had deliberately attacked Blake while Anglo-Dutch talks were ongoing, so as to place the English at a disadvantage and fool them into a state of complacency. Thus, the Rump now sought to punish the Dutch for their cunning and dishonesty, and not even the states of Holland's most senior politician could change their minds. The Rump and the English Council of State that ruled the Commonwealth were mostly united in the confidence of their navy this despite the fact that many in Europe expected the pariah commonwealth to be utterly battered by the supreme Dutch Republic. Perhaps most importantly, it was the Dutch, both in their states general and within the seven provinces themselves, who believed in the supremacy not just of their fleet, but of their tactics, over the English. Such Dutch belief would have disastrous consequences for the Republic in the war. Not only was the top of the Dutch state convinced of their own power in material terms, but the old tactics they had used, such as fire ships and attempting to board and seize enemy vessels with companies of soldiers, rather than simply fire upon them at a distance, were still upheld as the primary means by which naval victory would be achieved. To achieve such a victory, the smaller Dutch vessels were generally faster and better equipped for shallow coastal waters than their rump counterparts, but they also dangerously lacked in the region of firepower, especially when it came to the converted former merchant vessels more used to convoy service than fighting a determined enemy at sea. By contrast, the English battle fleet was composed of huge man-o'-war battleships possessing an excess of 60 guns, alongside a tried-and-tested routine of fire and reload that meant the volume of English cannon on board was always going to outstrip and deafen the Dutch. The English focused on destroying their enemy at range, while the Dutch still sought to ram, board and conserve the enemy vessel for merchant service. Incredibly, because such tactics had proved effective in the 1639 Battle of the Downs against Spain, and because the Dutch had not fought a naval campaign since, these tactics wholeheartedly remained the Dutch bread and butter. The English were in the same mysterious position as the Dutch though, having not fought a real naval battle themselves since 1588 against the Spanish Armada. The lack of experience meant that a coherent naval strategy didn't materialise for some time in the war, and since the bulk of the war's events would unfold at sea, well, practically all of them in fact, this meant little of consequence actually occurred for much of 1652. 
Initially, both sides sought to simply continue their peacetime policies, but with more violent means. The English attacked Dutch shipping with more venom and determination, while the Dutch convoyed everything that moved. These were the tactics resembling the Germans and the British during both world wars, and the results for the Dutch in this case would be just as damaging if they couldn't keep up the flow of trade vessels to offset the increased costs of convoying. The English split their forces, as did the Dutch, and sent a larger portion of their force to attack the Dutch herring vessels off the Shetland Islands, near the North Sea. While Admiral Blake was assigned this task, and his adversary Tromp set off to counter him, their subordinates were left in control of the English Channel, though the Dutch had the greater ratio of vessels in the region. Theoretically, this meant that Tromp's subordinate, Michel de Routier, had an opportunity to overwhelm the English there, led by Sir George Askew, Blake's lieutenant. However, because the Dutch only seemed willing to mobilise their naval power when a merchant convoy needed either rescuing or escorting, de Routier was given instructions to escort a convoy across the French coast through the Channel, return to the Netherlands, and then prepared to send a second convoy out to meet a returning merchant convoy from the Bay of Biscay. In this action, the Dutch expected to be confronted by Askew's smaller force, but they took so long to create the required convoy of 30 ships that concern began to emerge about Blake returning from the North Sea, though Blake wouldn't make it in time. Even in this small convoy, the inadequacies of the Dutch navy was apparent. In de Routier's force of 30 ships, only two had more than 30 guns on board, while his flagship, the ship he commanded, only had 28. Such deficiencies in firepower were initially obscured in the first engagement between Askew and de Routier, because the former acted with much caution and retreated to Dover once his lines had been broken. Both sides lost many personnel, but no actual ships, while the merchant convoy successfully returned to the Netherlands, and both inflated the damage they had inflicted and the numbers they had had to face. The fact that the Dutch didn't lose much in this initial encounter meant that no significant changes were made to the composition of Dutch fleets or the way these fleets fought. A significant political casualty of the uneventful summer of 1652 was Admiral Tromp himself, who had been blamed by both the States General for his lack of action, and by the Dutch reps in London for too much action, and was feared in Holland for his Orange's sympathies. Tromp, for his part, detested the Regent's control of war policy in The Hague, and complained bitterly that his task of protecting merchant shipping and fighting the enemy at the same time was too great for one Admiral and one Navy to bear. He was nonetheless replaced in late August 1652 by Witt de Witt, an uncharismatic regent lapdog disliked in the Dutch navy for his harsh treatment of soldiers and sailors, but upheld by the regent in the States General as one who would act in the best interests of the whole state. The only battle de Witt did participate in was his last. The pounding the Dutch received and the failure of the Dutch forces to remain coherent should have led to a complete disaster in the Battle of the Kentish Knock on the 5th of October 1652. Yet it didn't, because the English had attacked so late in the day and the Dutch had made good their retreat under the cover of darkness. The Dutch could blame de Witt for a loss, and indeed they did, but they still failed to implement any of the needed reforms in naval command and tactics, despite the fact that some of the lesser commanders like de Rutscher had observed as early as the summer that the Dutch were badly outgunned. Such an observation was confirmed on the 10th of December 1652, achieved its strategic victory against the inexperienced Admiral Blake, and Dungeness, 
off the south coast of England that would have been far more impressive and devastating had the Dutch ships possessed adequate armaments with which to penetrate the sturdy English hulls. Yet, while the English responded admirably to such developments, the Dutch saw the battle as proof of their supremacy and changed nothing. To conclude then, so far the Dutch had grazed the English, had fled from them in disarray, and inflicted a minor strategic defeat upon them. Yet this was enough for the States General, as 1653 approached. As the Dutch procrastinated and engaged in self-congratulations, the English rump implemented the later celebrated Articles of War, a code of military discipline, pay and tactics that became the bedrock of English naval power. Pay was increased to skilled workers and essential engineers that kept the fleet afloat. Aggression was increased and encouraged by introducing incentives like rewards for those enemy ships captured or for major displays of bravery. The articles also listed punishments such as fines or even death for showings of cowardice, as had been displayed by many of Blake's force at Dungeness when they had failed to support the main body of the fleet. England and the Netherlands both lacked a professional naval corps at this point in time, for reasons of inexperience and because the means by which both sides acquired ships, where vessels and their crews were hired and got to retain their own captains on board, made such a corps difficult to create. It meant that the fleet fought more like a series of individuals rather than as one. No line formation yet existed for the English or Dutch, so neither found it very easy to detect either the major culprits of cowardice or exactly where the weak points in their navies lay. The English intended to fix the problem by having the state appoint a captain to each ship, wherever it had originated, while a reformado, essentially the representative of the owner of the ship, served as his second in command. Such changes meant that the English could hold their officers to account and that weaknesses in their fleet could be immediately dealt with. The decision was also made to leave some of the largest ships of the English fleet behind, like the Sovereign of the Seas, which, though possessing a ridiculous 80 guns, required an unfeasible 700 men to sail and fight. These crews could filter into merchant service or serve the more reasonably sized 40-gun frigates and first rates that constituted the bulk of the English fleet. With more complete manning of its vessels, the English could thus hope to do a greater range of damage. The test was to come in 1653, as Tromp sought once again to guide a convoy, and Blake sought once again to intercept. In late February 1653, Tromp and Blake confronted each other in the so-called Channel Fight. For two hours, Admiral Blake was able to withstand Tromp's assault with 30 ships. The immense English firepower overwhelmed the Dutch force, and although Blake was wounded and his own flagship, the Triumph, took damage and casualties, as did many other English ships on their top decks, the results of the battle were nonetheless conclusive. Tromp had lost a third of his ships and still had a convoy to escort, while the victorious Blake was able to shadow and challenge him all the way home, which he did in regular intervals. Tromp had been dissuaded from seeking battle, and only escaped with a third of his original force and half the original merchant convoy and its prizes due to his superior seamanship skills and a convenient storm that flared up behind him as he retreated home. Now it was the Dutch turn to reflect on what had happened. English ships were far and away superior to anything that the Dutch possessed, and the channel was effectively barred now from Dutch trade, meaning that the new route over the North Sea would have to be used a route that could only handle about half of the traffic as the original channel route. This was bad enough in itself, 
but the Dutch, because of the war, had lost about 5,000 men killed, captured and wounded. Experienced seamen with no equal would now have to be replaced by green conscripts. The situation did not show any signs of improving either. Although the States General would approve the construction of larger warships to rival the English, none would be available in time for 1653. And shortages of men, materials and money were already beginning to manifest themselves in the Republic, as production on the dockyards slowed. It was this crisis that faced the newest Dutch statesman to assume the position of Grand Pensionary of the States of Holland. Johan de Witt, in this position, as the de facto Dutch Prime Minister, had a mountain of work ahead. But times were also changing, across the sea, in the Rump Regime. This episode has been broken into four parts for easier listening. You've reached the end of part three, but not the end of the war. So please check your downloads for the next installment of the First Anglo-Dutch War. This episode has been mostly concerned with explaining the Dutch economic predominance across the world. Why events such as the implementation of the navigation... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Negation Act so bothered them, and how the war then erupted while negotiations remained in place in London. We also looked at the opening encounters between the two new enemies, and made it just to the point where the scales finally fell from the Dutch government's eyes. Only over the coming months would it become even clearer still that their navy, the navy that had seemingly conquered the world, simply was not good enough. We'll examine these epiphanies and others in the next and final episode of our coverage of the First Anglo-Dutch War. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me then. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 